Welcome to Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Carradine. Today we're going to be talking about disruption. And disruption's a really common hot topic word in the kind of circles Stephen and I frequent. So we figured we'd start by defining what actually do we mean by disruption, because there are more and less technical definitions of the word. And for our purposes, we're actually going to go with the less technical definition of the word, which is kind of the way everyone's using it, which is just how tech is changing other industries, and especially the advent of the internet is changing other industries. Yeah, so we're really interested not in any particular disruption, although we could talk for great length about uh, Uber or about smartwatches or about you know, healthcare. These are all topics that we've touched on before and how tech, you know, organizes them or disorganizes them or however. Um, but what we're interested in today is more of the broad view of why disrupt things? What should we disrupt? As the internet kind of eases into a phase where they're not automatically just fixing everything, um, <laughs> as we kind of move into a phase where the initial burst of internet is kind of slowing down. We're starting to evaluate what should we be doing and how should we be doing it. It's a good time to sit back and talk about some of these issues. What should we be doing? Why should we be doing it? Um, who should we be? And all of these questions. So we thought we would start there. One of the big places this often comes up that touches both of us pretty significantly is the area of education. And there's a notion very, very common right now in tech circles that education is this really backwards area that's just you know rife for disruption. And if we could just get the technology in the classrooms and we could get people using the internet and so on, we would solve all these big problems in education. Well, there's an extent to which that might be true. There are ways in which using the internet and some of the backbone and infrastructure that we've supplied over the last couple of decades can be very helpful. We can get educational material to people whom we could not reach before. We can get uh, it at times that we couldn't get it before, and we could certainly get the same information to a much broader group of people. You don't have to be sitting in a classroom today. So maybe there are some problems that have been out there historically that it's fixing. But there are also costs and there are downsides to doing something as a massively online open enrollment course. There are downsides to not being in a classroom with your professor. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that we look at as we're looking at this or as we're looking at the attempt to disrupt the watch industry, we'll come back to that in a minute with some chuckles, I promise. Uh, or the attempt to disrupt journalism or publishing or all of these things is the fact that you can disrupt something doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And the fact that something is inevitably going to be disrupted in some cases, publishing is a great example of this. The advent of the internet just makes it Easier. essentially unavoidable. Yeah. Uh, doesn't mean that you should go about it without very careful thought because you know, the the way you do it, there's sometimes 
as we've talked about in the past, this technological idealism and sort of utopianism that if we can just get the tech in there, it'll fix all the problems. And the reality is that a lot of times the problems are actually not technical problems, but human problems. And therefore, right. well, you might solve problems A, B, and C, but along the way introduce problems D, E, and F. Yeah. And that's especially true of things like education, where we've started to see the output of some of these MOOCs and people have started to, you know, study them and people who are, you know, studying them not as like, oh, the sky is falling or, <laughs> oh, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. But people who are just taking an objective look at these things are saying, wow, guys, these suck. <laughs> Yeah. Like they're they're not just bad in that a lot of people don't finish them. They're bad in that they're not good learning or teaching. Like mm -hmm. they're just not good, which makes sense because we've been doing college for approximately 3000 years and we've been doing MOOCs for approximately four. So <laughs> this makes perfect sense. Um, we don't have a, a giant history, especially when MOOCs decide to divorce themselves very purposely from that history. Mm -hmm. They don't have a history to draw back on. So naturally, you're going to make mistakes such as the very public and very unfortunate how to run a MOOC class that quit halfway through because the person apparently did not know how to run a MOOC. Um, this is oh dear. This, this is bad. These are things that happen when, you know, you're starting an industry from scratch without any, you know, background. And MOOCs are kind of different than most quote-unquote disruptions because they're brought about by external factors that were happening even before technology. And so it's kind of a technology trying to fill a problem that already existed. But disruption in the tech sense, in the tech world, sometimes just looks at an industry and says, ooh, we can disrupt that because we can. <laughs> And that's and that's just not the way that things work. Right. So the, there are two two ways in which that's not the way things work. And one of them is, well, maybe you can, but but maybe actually it's not particularly amenable to being disrupted. And the other is, well, maybe you can, but what if that just breaks all the things that actually make that good? Yeah, it's totally true. It's really really easy to see in something like watches, which Chris and I have <laughs> laughed about for a while now, is that there's been this giant race to create the smartwatch. Um, and the Pebble threw their hat in the ring, and they had a monster Kickstarter. Apple is always rumored to be bringing a smartwatch to market. Like, they're PC-based smartwatches. Like, this is a thing that the industry thinks people want. Except... This is not actually, as far as I can tell, a thing that, <laughs> a thing that want. anybody wants. <laughs> like, I know people who have these smartwatches, and they basically use them as watches. watches. <laughs> they don't use the capabilities of the smartness. It's because people don't think of watches that way. You know, it is kind of cool to have a holodeck simulator on your wrist, basically, and feel all Star Trek-y and awesome. But you don't really need text messages to be pushed to your little watch face because you already have them pushed to your phone, which is in your pocket, which is approximately next to your wrist. <laughs> it's probably also easier to return this text message on your phone than on your watch. So it's a weird kind of thing where, yes, it is a cool idea. It's a possible idea, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. Right. And... You know, there are lots of arguments to be made, some of them very good, that 
as poor as today's technology is integrating technologies of this sort into our garments and so on going forward might be very useful. But again, as we've talked about in the past, there are also costs to doing that. Almost all of those involve supplying more and more of your data, including geographical, and then you start getting into physical and so on. Right. And sure, there are some really neat upsides potentially to that, especially for people with medical situations where that becomes valuable. There are also some downsides to that in that, well, Google and the government alike can both track a, more than I particularly like of where I've gone in a day and what I've done in a day already. I'm not particularly enthused about the idea that we're going to start adding to that by, you know, putting devices in my clothing and... Well, don't worry. Smart shoes have also been suggested as a good idea, <laughs> and no one has really wanted those either. So it's... All of which takes us kind of this big, big first point of, okay, disruption is an interesting idea, and disruption can be really good. You know, in the past couple decades, we've seen the advent of the internet be a thing that enables a lot of people to do things they couldn't before, to make strides economically that they couldn't before. But not all the things are ready to be disrupted. Some of them can't be, and some of them probably shouldn't be. And there are some that should. Like right. Lyft and Uber disrupting the taxi industry is great because in the end, all the taxi drivers are going to be using Uber or Lyft, in my opinion, and they're going to get paid better because Uber and Lyft have better payment systems. Like, this is a good thing to disrupt. That was not a very, you know, efficient for taxi drivers system. And perhaps Lyft and Uber results in that better system. That's a mm -hmm. perfectly good, you know, system of disruption. I'm totally down with that. You know, publishing disruption has brought about some really good things as well. It's also some bad things. So we're not anti-disruption here. We're just saying the cult of disruption is kind of a cult and not necessarily <laughs> like an optimal strategy for every situation. That that description, I think, is apropos because it seems to me right now that in the tech industry especially, there's this notion that everything ought to be disrupted, that anything that can be should be and that everything ultimately will be, that the internet and computers and these sets of technology not only can but should change all the things and that doing so will inevitably make the world a better place. Right. We're just not persuaded of that. We're not persuaded that interneting all the things will inherently make them better. And to take one, you know, to look at the publishing example, there are ways in which the new world of publishing is fantastic. I mean, I have friends who are self-publishing via ebooks and one of them was able to quit his regular non-writing job last year and start just publishing his novels and he knocks them out and he has somebody he pays to edit and somebody he pays to do cover art for him and he puts them up on iBooks and Amazon and Barnes and Noble for the Nook and all of these and he that makes was not money. a thing he, he makes good money he makes yeah you know, he's not famous or rich but he makes a living living wage for himself yep. and that's fantastic that's brilliant there are Therefore, some really, really good things that have come out of disrupting the publishing market. At the same time, there are a lot of things that are going missing. And if you carry this too far, too fast without thinking about the consequences, you're going to run into having serious issues with getting any kind of quality journalism done. You're going to have serious issues with 
doing rare, you know, low interest publishing, you're going to have a hard time marshalling those factors. And you could argue that things like Kickstarter are starting to step in and fill some of those gaps. But there are things that established publishers are good at doing that you're not going to be able to replicate in terms of expertise. Yeah. Especially I'm thinking academic publishers and things like that. And Amazon and others are putting huge pressure on them too. But there's a lot of real expertise there and sometimes the tech community can assume that it can replace that expertise with its own, even though they're in non-overlapping fields. Right. And that's not to say that technology can't eventually, with you know years of working, iterating, and perhaps partnering with these experts, mm -hmm. become a good product that will help people do things better. But the idea that you can just jump in, drop some technology on it, and then leave, and then have made the world a better place is not a real thing. Like, the technology bomb is not a real concept. <laughs> like, I know Well, that actually, is... it is, and it works about like actual bombs do. Right. It tends to make yeah. everybody unhappy and things worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there are examples of, you know, taking technology to places that don't have technology physically, um, you know, and working with people there and building a technology culture there. But that's a lot different than saying, like, I see that thing over there. We're going to go fix it and then make some money and then leave, um, which is, you know, the approximation of how some, not all, um, how some entrepreneurs view various industries that haven't been fully, you know, optimized. Disrupted. Disrupted. Um and so, you know, there, there are ways that this disruption can go in profitable ways for everyone, those experts mm -hmm. and the disruptors and the technology people, but it takes everybody's expertise. It can't be this single entrepreneur with a team that comes in swashbuckling on a white horse with a <laughs> giant so sword of Java and Ruby and just slays the beast that is non-disrupted <laughs> optimization, like... That's, right. that's not awesome. Right. I, I think a great example of this, without making any partisan claims at all, is the way the website for healthcare rollouts went last year. And we talked there about was, this then. We, we did, yeah. And I think it's just a great one-off example of how the problem there is that the healthcare system is, if not an intractable problem, very nearly so. Getting all of these disparate systems to talk to each other is crazy hard. And I spent some time at the beginning of the summer doing some research for a, a contract I didn't end up getting, but that involved making healthcare systems talk to each other for a, a small company here in the Wake Forest area. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it's crazy! <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy tough. And there is enormous medical expertise that's hard to convert to mm -hmm. data form. There is, mm -hmm. and we, we see that across a lot of fields. And so yeah. one of the big things I think we need here as technologists is a serious dose of humility to recognize that we have expertise that may be really useful and helpful in a given area if it's applied thoughtfully and carefully, but it's only going to be useful when combined with other people's expertise and when combined in a way that acknowledges the limitations of technology and remembers that the point of technology is not technology itself, but to improve 
in ways that matter to the user, yeah. not just to us nerdy technologists who like technology, but to improve in ways that matter to the users of the, the technology, their experience. Yeah, there's definitely a, a lack of consideration for the user as a real person other than mm -hmm. like the user as a person who wants the best possible cost or deal or whatever. Um, there's often a sense where uh, the user is more of an imaginary figure than an actual, you know, person that has considerations mm -hmm. and things. And you can see this in the way that like, you know, Foursquare kind of ruined itself with Swarm <laughs> and how, you know, Facebook continually iterates in non-obvious and non-beloved ways and, you know, how things like, you know, Uber get giant backlash in various communities that they just barge into and don't understand and right. um, Lyft. Actually, Uber has done really well with working with that, but Lyft has not done well at all. Um, the whole bull in the china shop approach. <laughs> um, so kudos to Uber, not so much to Lyft. But um, so there's definitely that element as well that as we disrupt things, we need to make sure that, again, back to the watches, that people actually want this. Um, and then back to, you know, Lyft, that you're not, you know, trampling all over um, people's livelihoods for no good reason. Uh, right. And that's one thing that Silicon Valley people have to watch out for is that there's starting to be a sort of backlash towards this mentality that, you know, we can fix your industry because mm -hmm. we're us and we're great and we have venture capital money. Like, <laughs> and so, you know, Silicon Valley in the early 2000s was kind of like this rock star area, you know? And now in the, you know, early 2010s, it's more of a deemed with suspicion, kind of those guys over there type, you know, mentality that a lot of people have about Silicon Valley and all the mm -hmm. tech companies in general. So it strikes me that there's an analogy here, and certainly we shouldn't push this too far, but you know, we look historically at the sort of cultural imperialism that a lot of Western powers engaged in over much of the 18th, 19th, and 20th century. And you could argue that's still going on, but especially in those eras where there was sort of this, you know, we can talk about the the white man savior complex and all the things that go with that. And I think you can see some of that here in the technological era. There's this sort of technological... Imperialism, imperialism yeah. of we're going to come in and fix your problems for you and technological superiority of we're the smart ones, we can do this. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit recently because there's a project which I really like the idea of called Code for America, where you get basically software developers in local communities working basically pro bono for to, America. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a code for Durham and there's a code for Raleigh and there's a code for Denver and code for Oklahoma City and all or a code for Tulsa and all of these. And I think it's great for America. I think, <laughs> America. Uh I I I think I said that wrong. I'm not really good at saying America. <laughs> um but while the concept is great and while it's something I'm actually interested in participating in because I think there is a good way to help the community there. I think that also highlights a danger for us in thinking that we can go in and just solve people's problems with some code. Because the reality is some problems may be tractable that way. You know, maybe we can help figure out ways to get information to people because that's what information technology does best. 
But there are lots of problems we can't solve that way. We can't solve racism that way. What? We can't, <laughs> right? <laughs> we can't solve chronic poverty issues just with information. Not true. <laughs> Just, that's just the response, you know? Right, right, exactly. We can solve all the things with information and technology, and especially information technology. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, we, we can't. And it's extraordinarily arrogant to think that we can't. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think humility is definitely something that's lacking in Silicon Valley, which, you know, they kind of were rock stars for there for about mm -hmm. 10 years. So, you know, they kind of gained some of that, God complex by, you know, mm -hmm. kind of being American gods there for a while. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's kind of rough when you're uh, you realize that you're not as awesome as you used to be. Welcome. Right. To, welcome to middle age technology. <laughs> welcome to middle age. So, yeah, it's it's definitely true that the people behind technology need to start having a little bit more humility in the ways that they interact with these various problems. I mean, because as human beings, we want to solve problems. That's mm -hmm. a very natural thing that we want to do. But we also have to understand that as human beings and as you know, religious human beings, Christian human beings, we are aware that we cannot solve every problem. It is right. not a possibility. Technological utopianism, it just doesn't exist for the, the in Christian thought. So as we do these things that, yes, do make the world better, and yes, we should participate in these things that do make the world a better place to live and a better place for justice and a better place for the poor and the widows and the hungry and the fatherless and all of these people that need to be protected. Um, we also have to keep in mind that this is not the silver bullet. This is not the ultimate solution. And thinking that it is, is A, a non-Christian sort of stance on things, and B, if you're in a secular point of view, it's it's a very stressful, deeply guilting sort of view to take, mm -hmm. um, that if you can't fix the world, you either have to blame yourself or someone else, um, and that's really hard on everyone, and that's how environments start to get toxic, is when there's blame going around for like, we haven't fixed India's poverty yet, why haven't <laughs> we done this? Been working the for like evil. three years, guys. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> it, right, and... And then there's also the poor you will always have with you. I yeah, mean, you put those pieces together, and it, and that, that admonition is not to keep us from seeking the good of the poor and the homeless and the widow and the orphan, as you said, but to do so with the humility to remember that we can't fix all the problems. Right. That you know, I'm all in favor of a a lot of pieces of progressive sentiment in the sense that we do want to make progress in areas where we can, but I think there's a danger in that of thinking that humanity is always improving and most importantly of thinking that change is always progress yeah and i i think if i had to sum up what i see as the fundamental flaw of the kind of innovation and disruption cult it's that it is that assumption the assumption that change is always progress that change is always better that new is always better right that whatever we are doing that we didn't do yesterday is better than whatever we were doing yesterday just because we're doing it today. Right. It's simply the modern incarnation of what C.S. Lewis half a century ago called chronological snobbery. But that's a human problem. Right. Not a not a particular problem of the 1950s. Right. Yeah. And so I think that it's 
definitely a, a tough balance we have to strike between not just holding up in our little caves and saying like, well, <laughs> world's going to get better. Better just hang out and enjoy ourselves. <laughs> and, you know, kind of ending up in this deep guilt and shame where you tried your best and the world didn't get that much better. Um, I mean, burnout is is huge and mm -hmm. liberal um, social justice causes and movements. And yeah, stuff like that. Um, that those whole types of movements, they are deeply important to the life of the world. And I feel that mm -hmm. God cares deeply about those sorts of things. But we also have to keep in mind that they will make small changes um, mm -hmm. most of the time. There will be heroic William Wilberforce's every now and then, um, Martin Luther King's every now and then. Th that's just the way of the world. But most things that we do are going to be small incremental changes. And if we have this perspective that technology will be the thing that finally makes it so that every human can do something amazing and every human can fix everything, we're going to all burn out. Um, you know, whether it be in three years, 10 years, or 20 years, you know, that's, you know, it's just historically not going to be possible to sustain that amount of, you know, looking disappointment in the eye and saying like, oh, I, I have not succeeded. Mm -hmm. So whereas if we take the view that technology can improve some things and especially that technology carefully applied and thoughtfully applied and above all humbly applied can improve some things that will give us the grounds for applying it in those careful, thoughtful, humble ways. And that will let us make those small incremental differences. And those things do add up over time. Mm -hmm. They do make a difference in the lives of communities and of individuals. Right. And that's, that's where we want innovation and disruption to lead us right. insofar as we do. And we also need the willingness to say, hey, let's not disrupt this. That's not a good thing to disrupt. Yeah. I mean, and it, Chris and I are both Christians coming from Christian culture, but this applies to Christian and secular uses of technology. Seeing mm -hmm. technology as the ultimate savior is not going to work, um, whether it's, you know, because you can't sustain um, success or because you can't achieve success or because somebody else gets there first. It, there's just so many variables that make it so difficult to have that perfect goal of everything being fixed be impossible, which doesn't mean that we quit. Um, I'm not advocating that we quit any of the social justice that we're doing. Um, I think we should always press on to protect the, uh, the widow and the orphan and um, those who are lacking justice um, from those who are more powerful than them. But I think that we do need that humility and we do need to say, all right, we're going to do our best. And if we get somewhere, we are doing well. Um, but we, we can't fix everything all the time now. This has been episode three of season one of Winning Slowly. All of our content is available under a Creative Commons attribution license, which means you can do whatever you want with it. Just say you got it from us. The one exception being the music played at the beginning, which is a license under the terms noted in the show notes. Don't forget that we have an iTunes feed that you can follow and 
You can also find us in a variety of other locations on this uh, winningslowly.org page um, and other places noted in the notes. Until next time, I've been Chris Kreitschow. And I am and will be Stephen Caradini. Thanks for listening. <laughs>